Rabbi Mendy, welcome to Search for Das. I am thrilled to say you are the first guest on this podcast and very much the inspiration behind it. And I can't think of anyone who would be a better first guest to kick it off. So welcome. Thank you. This is such a so exciting. It's an honor, a privilege to be your first guest. <laughs> I've never done a podcast before, so this is definitely going to be interesting. See where this goes. I would love to kick this off with the name of the podcast, Search for DOS. That is a word I didn't know until a couple of weeks ago as we were texting back and forth and I was asking you questions on what is the Hebrew word for knowledge, wisdom, and you came back with a very Jewish response with it, it's just not that simple. And uh, the word that you ended up introducing to me is DOS. And you then sent me a link to a video recording of your grandfather talking about DOS. And I was immediately drawn into his explanation of it. And it was all that much more meaningful because, well, it's your grandfather. So I would like to hear from you, what is the, the meaning of DOS to you? What, is, what does it mean in, in the Jewish tradition? And uh, how do you think about it day to day, if, if you do at all? DOS, um, as you mentioned, you know, so superficially, it, it has its basic English translation. Uh, I've seen people call it recognition or knowledge. Knowledge is usually a more uh, common translation. Um, but of course, like everything, every word in the Bible, in Torah, it's very precise. There's a lot of depth to it, a lot of all kinds of connotations. Um, DOS is used in various contexts. Um you know, the earliest reference probably, I think, is the uh, story of Adam and Eve. Well, there's, of course, there's the tree of knowledge, the Eitz Hadas. That's, well, you know, that's what that's called. Um, and then there's this story of Adam and Eve. And, and you know, in Torah, whenever it uses the Bible, wants to uh, describe a, a couple that's, that's being intimate with one another, it actually uses, employs the term Das. It says that Adam knew his wife, and it uses the word Yoda, which is, comes from the same word. Um, which was always, it's a mean, is usually a euphemism or a reference to intimacy. Um, maybe we can come back to that in a moment. But Kabbalistically, Das is a whole, really, there's a lot of depth to it. According, according to Kabbalah, and maybe we should discuss what Kabbalah is <laughs> for the listeners later, but according to Kabbalah, the, uh, the human soul possesses 10 faculties or 10, uh, 10 attributes. And the 10 faculties, they, they derive from what's called the 10 sefirot, which is the 10 divine attributes that basically define God's relationship with his creations. Without getting too much into that, because that's also a loaded topic, and which also basically constitute the 10 spiritual building blocks of the created reality that we, that we see today. So actually, this is what, according to Kabbalah, this is what it means when we say, for example, in the Bible, it says that man was created in the image of God and that the human is, the human being constitutes a, you know, like a, is like a miniature universe. This is what we're talking about, that our 10 attributes, our 10 faculties of our soul reflect the 10 attributes 
that God uses to, to create the world. Now, the 10 faculties can be divided up into two general categories. There's the intellect and there's the emotional. There's the, uh, there's the three intellectual faculties and the seven emotional and behavioral faculties. So to briefly summarize the, the first three of the, the intellectual faculties, those are called, in Hebrew, they're just called chachma, which is uh, commonly translated as wisdom, bina, which is translated as understanding, and then there's das, which is our topic for today, knowledge. So briefly, chachma, wisdom, is basically the idea, is the capacity to, to conceive new ideas. It's sometimes referred to as like a flashing light or a person has an inspiration, but it's undefined. It can't exactly pinpoint what it is. It's, it's that moment of inspiration that, that a light bulb went off in somebody's head. Um, Bina is when you start to actually analyze and develop that idea, that inspiration. You start to break it down. What does it consist of? What, is, what, are, what are its parameters? You start to get into the nitty-gritty details. Das is when it's not necessarily reinventing new information. Das is the ability basically to relate to ideas and to apply them to ourselves. So das is that part of our psyche that takes what we understand and makes it makes it significant to us. Um, there's actually a great parable that's used in a lot of uh, in, in Hasidic works to, that's used to uh, to understand to understand what exactly is das. Um, basically, the parable goes like this: there's a there was an official-looking letter adorned with stamps and seals, um, and it basically arrived at a small wayside in uh, somewhere in the backwoods of Russia, just showed up in the middle of nowhere. And um, the illiterate innkeeper ran to find the local school teacher in order to enlist his assistance. He wanted to know how to, how to he, he, couldn't, he couldn't read or write. So as the teacher read the letter out loud, the innkeeper, he suddenly turned white and he began to cry and he actually fainted. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason is because the letter contained shocking and tragic news for this simple good-hearted man. His beloved father had passed away. That's, that was the contents of the letter. So let's analyze this. That's basically the parable, in short. So if we analyze it for a moment, why does the innkeeper react so dramatically to the letter? While the teacher, he's, uh, he's relatively unmoved. You know, which, which one of these two people better comprehends the contents of the letter? You, for sure, you would say the learned teacher, certainly. The innkeeper, he cannot read. He can't even write. He doesn't know anything. But obviously, this is a ridiculous question because the teacher, he might have a better appreciation of the vocabulary. He might have a better ability when it comes to sentence structure and penmanship with which the letter is you know, generally composed of. He might be mm-hmm. even better equipped to understand the different nuances of the event described. But at the end of the day, it's not his father who died. The teacher, he might have a better grasp of the information and letter with, with which his, his Chachma faculty and his Bina faculty, you know, the ability to conceive and to understand, dissect, he might have, he might, it might be stronger by him. But his Das faculty, the part of his brain, the part of his mind that relates to and cares about the information is less engaged. On the other hand, for the illiterate innkeeper, the information is personally meaningful and significant. And to be sure, the teacher, he also has das. And in as much as we all possess, every human being possesses a certain degree of empathy for a, for a fellow human being. But it's not to the same degree as the innkeeper. 
So Das isn't an intellectual knowing. It's not a mind knowing, but a, but a deeper knowing. It's an intimacy with the other that bridges the distance between subject and object, between the knower and the known. And that's where you can kind of get to the idea how Das relates to Adam and Eve. You know, when it comes to a relationship, when it comes to a marriage, to really be intimate with someone is to know them, but not just a superficial knowledge, to know them in the, in the deepest core, in the, on the level of the soul, where you literally become intimate with them. That's why it uses the term in the Torah that Adam knew his wife, uses the expression Das. I, I want to jump in on the word ability. I heard you say that early on in your description of, of the word. Is, is this something, how does one obtain the ability to apply Das? Imagine a, uh, a doctor living in the 60s. And, you know, back then he, uh, a lot of smoking was going on and he smokes a couple of packs himself a day. And uh, he has a pretty uh, unimportant chronic cough, but it's, it's otherwise relatively normal. And then one day, this doctor, he notices that every patient for whom he, he prescribes cough, you know, different cough antidotes and, and, and remedies, um, but all of his patients, they all smoke. So he has a sudden flash. Maybe smoking and coughing are related. And then he has a second flash. Maybe smoking is actually bad for me. Maybe it's bad for the health in general. So these flashes of, of, of wisdom that we mentioned before, that's what's known as chachma. The flash has, has no length or breadth. It's just a flashpoint. It's a, a momentary realization. Now, suppose this doctor, he actually now goes, he begins to do some investigating, starts to do research, he begins to study cases of chest-related disorders and starts to gather statistics. And slowly but surely, a pattern emerges in all the different numbers that he's, that he's gathering. There's, there's actually a very clear correlation between the smoking population and the chest-related disorder population. That's Vina, the process of investigating and understanding the implications of that first flash. So examining the length and breadth of information, mm. which is you're doing that to, to build up a reasoned, you know, uh, a logical proposition, which is formed by a thorough understanding of the concept. Now, conclusion is reached. Smoking is bad for health. And that's what happens when the Bina process is finally complete. A proposition is born from the Chachma and then the Bina. And um, then, you, then you have your proposition. But here comes the jackpot question. Does our doctor in our story actually quit smoking? Does he actually give it up? And the incredible answer is not necessarily. Our imaginary doctor, he knows smoking will kill him. And yet he does not necessarily give it up. Why? Because he has no das in smoking. Das is the level of taking on board, taking information arrived through Chachma and Bina mm. so that actually a permanent change is affected. No one in their right mind can smoke. The reason they do is they have no das in relation to this wisdom. We say, for example, in, in Jewish law, there's a concept that small children have no das. Therefore, they're, not, they're absolved from various... Uh, activities and, and obligations. So this is the reason that also in uh, psychologically a child, they'll do things entirely contrary to even their own logic, let alone uh, that of their parent. You know, it's a waste of time to you take a child, a four-year-old kid, and try to reason with him why he should stay away from the swimming pool. Even in the unlikely event that the child can actually accept, you know, you give him examples of, of, of tragedies and you try to scare him and he might, he might have his chachman, he might have his bina working, but the child has no das. The child is 
is in critical danger near the water if he cannot swim. So the flash is understanding, and so is the statistical research. It's you know it's a change, um, as is the change of behavior. But we learn in Chassidus that each separate category are necessary, but it's impossible to be spiritually mature and upwardly mobile without the das. Another example, this is actually brought in the Talmud, talks about a thief, a Jewish thief, that prays to God for success. It uses an expression. Can you imagine the scene? He prays because he's a Jew. Jew do, you know, Jews do deals with God. If God lets me do this, I will do that in return. Help my child to this problem, and I will donate a computer to such and such an institution. Now, how can a thief pray for success? And the answer is because he knows there's a God. Yes, it's Chachma. He knows that he cannot profit by going against his will. He has his bina. So how can a man possibly profit from behaving contrary to, to Hashem's will, to God's will? And again, our Jewish thief, he steals because he's a spiritual child. He has no das in relation to stealing. It could be for very, you know, varied reasons. But the conclusion is the same, that he has no das. In a spiritually mature person, intellect rules emotion. Intellect is chachma, bina, and das. In order to complete an intellectual grasp of any matter, all three ingredients must be there. So to apply it is to contemplate the idea. You're not reinventing new information, but you spend time personalizing it and reflecting upon it. And yeah, you know, you mentioned it, you asked me if I think about it on a day-to-day basis. The truth is that's what Das is all about. It's, to, it's, it's a form of meditation. It's, it's, it's a contemplation that how this thing could be applicable to my day-to-day life. It's the bridge from taking something that you know, from, from the book and making it real. What's the story they say? I'm not sure exactly about Aristotle that, you know, one time his students caught him, you know, involved, engaged in some inappropriate activity and they didn't understand, you know, Aristotle, a, a great teacher, a philosopher, you, this morning in class, he spoke all about the virtues of, of the human being and the unbelievable, the, the greatness that he could accomplish with his mind and he could transcend tremendous levels. And here you are behaving like an animal. And he answered them very simply. This morning, I was Aristotle, the philosopher. Now, I'm just a regular dude doing my thing. That disconnect from the information to actually apply it to my life, that's a lack of das. And in a certain sense, it's the hardest because, you know, it's very easy to be conceptual and theoretical and, and to learn and to have philosophical debates and conversations. But, like, is it actually going to be practical change? Is someone going to do something about it? Someone gonna, is it going to be real to you? That spiritual child that is an individual who's having trouble applying or incapable of applying DOS. So it's in one way, I hear you describing it, it's the delineation between being a child and an adult. When one is an adult, truly an adult, they are in the capacity of applying DOS. Is, you know, from your standpoint, as is there a moment in time in your life where you've you've kind of you've had those Aristotle moments that you were just describing and you're kind of checking yourself and it is there are there elements of of the Jewish tradition that pull you back to to kind of check yourself um or do you just kind of say you know it's okay to be a spiritual child every once in a while yeah for sure all the time it happens that's uh, that's the that's the struggle of life that's why we're here ultimately to uh you know that's why for example it says uh, in the prophet describes how the world will be filled 
you know, in the, in the future time, in the Messianic era, the world will be filled with the knowledge of God. And again, it uses that expression, pops up again. And the idea is that, what do you mean? The world is already filled with godliness. We believe every man is created in the image of God and every person has a soul. And, and you know, if, if you believe in God, you believe God is constantly creating the world in every moment and everything, every, you know, everything in life is you encounter significant is infused with godliness, et cetera, et cetera. So what, what's going to change? Uh, essentially, what's going to change is this idea of Das, is that there'll be a bridge that people will actually recognize their godly potential and the capabilities, and, and, and now there'll be a certain level of consistency in applying it. Um, for sure, I've found myself all the time where you've, you know, you've studied something and you preach something even as a rabbi, and then suddenly you, you find yourself in that situation. You, know, you give a class in the morning about you have to love every person wholeheartedly and you need to be kind. And then one day someone, uh, you know, that very same day in the afternoon, uh, I don't know, somebody crosses you a, a red light or whatever it is. Maybe that's not a good example, but, uh, you know, there's situations where like suddenly you're faced with the opportunity where am I going to apply what I literally have just been preaching to a bunch of people? Is this, is this just information that I'm sharing with everyone or is this real? Um, and I think, uh, I think it's something I think about more now in the position I'm in now, you know, engaging with, with the Jewish community and, and being responsible to a certain extent in, in guiding people and helping people where you can't, you can't just, uh, can't, you can't fluff it anymore. You know, it has to be real. <laughs> it has to be, it has to be personalized. It has to be relatable. It has to be, you, you have to show them how you've applied it in your life. Um, and you have to, yeah, you have to be, it has to be authentic. Das is, is I guess another way would be describing is authenticity. You know, that consistency is what makes it authentic. That it's not mm -hmm. just abstract information in a book, but it's actually something very real um, that can be applied. I, I'd love to get into your story. And in terms of background, how, how we met, it's through my father who began studying with you. And fortunately, because of the, the benefits of technology, I've been able to zoom in on those Monday morning classes where you've led us through study of Perkei Avot. And I, I, I've really appreciated the, the opportunity to get to know you and your family's rabbinical history. Tell you, you, you come from a, a, a background that's very different than mine. And, and yet there's, I enjoy every moment that we're, we're hanging out and, and, and I'm learning from you and we're, we're learning together. Did you talk about where, where do you come from? What's your, your family background and what does this whole study of Torah mean to you and the people who came before you? Sure. But just before I do one qualification, because you mentioned how we come from a very different background. There was actually once uh, there was a big philanthropist. Uh, I think it was George Ward. The story goes that he came to the Rebbe, um, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who we'll be able to discuss later. And um, he was very proud to let him know that he had just launched a beginner's uh, minion, you know, a, a, a prayer service for the high holidays for those who were who couldn't read Hebrew, who didn't understand what was going on and to make it a more engaging service. And um, he approached the Rebbe to let him know about this great initiative that he just did and how he had a big turnout. And it was very successful. And he said, I had all these Jews with, with no Jewish background and they all came and and it was unbelievable turnout. And the Rebbe got very serious and he, he didn't understand. And like, I just told you some great news. I mean, you love this stuff. This is what, you know, this is what Chabad's all about, you know? 
so he maybe thought maybe the Rebbe didn't hear him properly. So he, he repeated it. You know, I got all these Jews with no Jewish background. And the Rebbe told him he has to go back there and tell every single one of them that there's no such thing as a Jew with no Jewish background. We all have the same background. We all come from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rachel, Leah, Rebecca. Um, so that was just one disclaimer. But I guess uh, in the specifics, so I was born in uh, I was born and raised in London, in England. Uh, accents still a little bit there, I think. Uh, my father's a rabbi, um, and his father before him, for several generations, I think I believe they were actually. I come from unbroken chain of rabbis, if I understand correctly. Um, my father's a rabbi of the Millhall United Synagogue, and it's quite a large community of about fifteen hundred families. So growing up, I was I was very much exposed to the role of the rabbinate, and it was uh, it was something I always felt like one day I may end up getting myself involved with. Um, you know, the idea of, of sharing Torah with others and showing the beauty and the joy of Judaism, it was very much part of the house I grew up in. Um, I spent several years studying in different yeshivas or, or Talmudic academies, and that's where you really begin to kind of dissect and explore and develop your Jewish identity. You start to envision what kind of Jewish life do you want to live? Um, so that was yeshiva. And then I graduated rabbinical school, got my rabbinical ordination in Jerusalem, Israel. I spent two years there also as a, I was teaching a Chumash, a Bible study, Jewish philosophy. And then I moved back to London where I began to work with my father's community and teaching over there as well in the Hebrew school. I then went to New York. Um, and that's when I went to, I went to pursue a, a degree in advanced Jewish studies. But again, I was still teaching. I was teaching over there Jewish history in a school in Brooklyn. And that's where I met my wife. And fast forward a couple of years and a baby later, the opportunity came up to work with the Jewish community here in Palm Beach. And that's where we are now. So I direct the adult education branch as well as co-direct our, our Chabad Young Professionals. My wife, God willing, will be opening the first Jewish preschool on Palm Beach Island in the fall. So we're very, uh, we're very happy about that. We're excited about where things are going. And that's... Uh, more or less my story, my journey. Nothing too crazy has happened. <laughs> What's it like growing up in a in a household with such a strong tradition of, and I want, I want to get the term right here, rabbinic history? Is that is that the right way to phrase it? Um, the what, sure, yeah. tell us more about that. Like, what at what point were you cognizant that that was a serious? element of your family's tradition and how did it manifest itself? Um, that's a great question. I think as a child, probably wasn't too conscious of it. I mean, you knew that you were the, you were the rabbi's son. So when you showed up to Shul and Shabbat or holidays and, you know, people will be like, people will be very friendly with you and, you know, and they really want to, you got a, I guess, a, a special attention for being the rabbi's son. And, um, but it wasn't necessarily like, a didn't think much of it, probably. Like, I, I think as a kid, I was probably very wild. I don't remember how much time I spent in, in the actual shul and the services. I was probably running around, playing football outside with my friends. Um, as you get older, you start to become more conscious of it. And, yeah, it's actually an interesting one because then you, you know, you're, you're still, once you become aware of it, and then people, you know, point it out to you. And my father, 
is quite a well-known rabbi in the United Kingdom and in the world in general, in, in the Chabad world. Um, and so I guess there was, there was an element of pressure, for sure. There was a certain uh, expectation, you know, oh, you're this rabbi so-and-so's son. Um, you know, the, the, there's a certain uh, perception where, like, for sure you're going to go in that direction or for sure you're going to turn out and do or, or perform the same way your father did and, you, and his father before him, etc. Um, so I think actually part of my journey was learning to kind of, you know, you, as a teenager, your initial reaction is to, kind of, you know, you, and teenagers in general, you, you try to resist, you, you separate yourself from your parents. You, you're so desperate to form your own identity that you go to the other extreme. And sometimes you do, you know, radical things just to show, oh, look, I'm so different. Um, you know, we've all, been, we've all teenagers, we've all been there. But then as you mature, you know, you kind of find that healthy balance where, you know, by divine providence, I'm born into this, you know, family with this great, great legacy and, and you know, tremendous rabbinic lineage. Um, and yeah, maybe on the one hand, it might be a certain level of uh, um, responsibility or, you know, expectation. But at the same time, it's also a privilege. And if you could find the embrace the positive aspects and take advantage of the, you know, the, the, the potential that's there. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, like I mentioned at the beginning of the story, we all come from great stuff. We all come from tremendous leaders. We all come from, you know, our heroes in the Torah, etc. So really every Jew is, 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 so to speak, you know, imposed with a certain pressure, a certain expectation to live up to the standards uh, of our forefathers. But at the same time, we're not, we're, we're, encouraged and very much um you know told that really in the, the day as great as your father is as famous as your great-grandfather is going back whoever how many generations all the way to abraham um the fact is that god created you which means that you have a purpose you have unique capabilities you have a unique contribution to make that nobody else can do not your father not your grandfather however far back you want to go and it's a very important principle in Judaism that every Jew, every person, every human being was created with a purpose. And therefore, they should never feel stifled or feel that, oh, you know, why should I do that? Let that person do it. He's more capable than me or she knows how to speak better or he knows how to write better or whatever it is in whatever field you were created. That means there's something you can do that nobody else can. And it's that idea, you know, conceptually, it's, it's beautiful. The challenge is, you know, das making it real, personalizing it. Why, you know, what indeed are my, to just go on a journey of self-discovery, what indeed is my uh, contribution, my mission, my purpose? What are my capabilities? Where are my strengths? Where can I focus on? Um, but not in a way of, I need to separate myself. You know, I need to uh, show that I'm different to prove myself. I mean, I guess in certain level that might be a motivating, motivating factor. Maybe it's not a terrible motivation. Maybe it might not be a terrible, um, you know, concept. But ideally, it should come from a place of I'm very blessed and very thankful for the family I'm, I come from. And at the same time, I know that I, I can't just rely on that. I can't just sit back and be like, oh, you know, I don't have to do anything because my father was an amazing rabbi and my grandfather was an amazing rabbi. So what do I need to do? And the answer is no. You, there's plenty for you to do that they can't do themselves. They, only you can. And it's very much a journey of self-discovery that really never ends. You're, you're always, you know as you get older, obviously, you know, I'm only 27 years old, so I'm not uh, far from the finished picture. There's much, much, much to do. I'm sure a bunch of people are listening right now. Just thought, wow, 27, definitely thought this guy was older. 
Um, so right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I you're talking about the rabbis and 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 coming from a, a lineage of rabbis and another person who had that type of lineage was the Rebbe. And that is someone who in the reform tradition that I grew up in, not, not all that uh, spoken about, not all that, that common to, to hear stories about him, but I've increasingly become familiar with, with his, his, um, what's the right word, his legacy. And what, so what separated him from others from his period of time? What made him special? Das. <laughs> that it connects to everything, Das. Um, it's a good, it's a good, it's a good question. You know, on the one hand, he's just another rabbi in general and then in the Hasidic world, another Hasidic master. Uh, you know, there are many Hasidic groups. Chabad is just one of many Hasidic movements that were an outgrowth of the Baal Shem Tov, Yerbishol Baal Shem Tov, who was the founder of the Hasidic movement in the uh, 17th century. Um, so the Rebbe specifically, what was Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, I guess just to, you know, a little biography, he was, he was born in 1902, passed away in 1994. Um, he's known as the Lubavitcher Rebbe, or the Rebbe, and he was one of the most influential Jewish personalities in the 20th century. Um, he's the only rabbi ever awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. So that's one thing that I guess you could say <laughs> makes him different um, from all rabbis. It's very interesting. The Congressional Gold Medal, of course, a very prestigious honor. Um, now, as the leader of the Chabad Lubavitch movement, so he was, you know, he's, he's, he was the seventh uh, leader of, of the Chabad dynasty, which goes all the way back to the 1800s. Uh, so he, um, he's just, you know, he's number seven. But on the other hand, he, he, he was different in that he was, uh, he took an insular Hasidic group that almost came to an end with the Holocaust. And he transformed it into one of the most influential movements in religious Jewry. Um, today, this is an international network of Chabad houses of over 5,000 educational and social centers. Um, you know, and these institutions they, they, they are, he, that he established, they, they include kindergartens, uh, schools, um, drug rehab centers, uh, care homes for the disabled, synagogues. You know, in the words of uh, the late former chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs of the United Kingdom, he once said that the Rebbe did something absolutely extraordinary. He said to himself after the war, if the Nazis, and remember, the, there was the Hasidic group at the time was barely a, barely a minion, as they say, it was hardly was hardly 10 people. It was a very small group. It, you know, the, the suffering and the decimation that took place. So the chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, he once said that, that if the Nazis searched out every Jew in hate, the rabbi's mission was to search out every Jew in love. Um, the rabbi didn't limit himself, though, to the Jewish population alone. And this is perhaps what sets him apart, I guess, from his predecessors. Um, although they all had actually engagement in various... various uh, government officials or, or, you know, kings and things like that, depending on how far back you go. Meaning we do have a Jewish tradition of certainly of, of engagement in the world, but the Rebbe took it, took things to another level. Um, the Rebbe didn't limit himself to the Jewish population. He met 
many prime ministers, politicians, policymakers, they would routinely deliberate with the Rebbe concerning, you know, whatever the issues of the time, the political, economic, or military policies. And he constantly addressed presidents, lawmakers, cabinet members about their one thing that he really pushed was their obligation to educate children to be ethical and, and just citizens. And that's why in 1978, on April 18th, that was uh, the date, the secular date on which was the Rebbe's Jewish birthday. President Jimmy Carter, he declared that year as Education Day USA. You heard of Education Day? I hadn't heard about it until I read a book on the Rebbe. Yeah, so every year since since 1978, the, the acting president has designated the anniversary of the Rebbe's birth as a day dedicated to educational hmm. awareness. And we- the Rebbe was so passionate about it. He felt... And, and yeah. not and not in a and not Sorry? a uh, religious sense, secular, correct? Exactly. He felt that in the American context, where you have freedom of religion and freedom of speech, we have the ability to share Judas's message to the world. You know, the idea that the prophet says being a light unto the nations, we weren't always um, able to do that. You know, for various reasons. Um, but today we have that ability. We have the, you know, we're, we're interacting and um, sharing the spiritual message with Judaism with the world, with non-Jews as well. And so that's where you start to see that the Rebbe really, he began to think about policy issues that aren't just relevant for Jews. He became an advocate for, for public education, for criminal justice reform. We can talk about that. For women's empowerment, alternative energy. He covered many, many topics. Uh, you know, the Rebbe initiated his famous moment of silence, you may have heard of the moment of silence campaign, which a lot of uh, different states have now passed into law, basically calling upon private and public schools to institute a moment of silence at the beginning of each day. And it's an unbelievable thing. It, it opens a space in which instead of the teacher feeding the student information and saying, this is what you have to say, there's actually this blank space in which the student has to be creative and has to think, okay, What's valuable to me? Das. <laughs> Which now involves the parents too before going off to school. You know, there isn't this disconnect where the parent just says, okay, I pay your tuition and I give you your lunch sandwich and I go off to school. No, now the child, before he goes to school, he's going to say, mom, dad, uh, I'm about to go to school. They give us 60 seconds to think about something, whatever we want, something that's meaningful in life, something that we value, you know, doesn't have to be about religion, whatever, whatever you find important to you. What's important in life? Of course, getting a job or going to school to learn and, and to, uh, you know, how to, how to get skills to, in the workplace, etc. But that's not really what life is all about. I don't just go to school to learn how to get a job. I go to school also to learn how to be a human being. That knowledge, that connection to, to making life real. Um, and now there's actually a, it, it creates another dynamic where the parent and the child have a, a deeper relationship, a more intimate connection, a more DAS type of relationship where they're not they're just sending them off to school, here's your lunch money and go to school, but actually they're going to have a conversation. They're going to, they're going to talk. There's going to be dialogue between parent and child. But in school, um, Governor DeSantis of Florida this year, I believe, um, passed, it, passed the bill about the moment of silence. It's something that 30 years later, you know, the Rebbe, it's, it's quite fascinating. He, he fought tremendously for it and worked really, really hard and tried to so, you know, every means possible to lobby it. Um, but uh, 
the idea that that 30 years later after his passing, that's still something being pushed. It's still something that's uh, that, you know, now is, is, is coming to fruition that his, you know, his dream of, of schools, children around the world taking a moment to think about what's real is a, is a beautiful thing. Um, and he didn't he didn't limit himself to just, you know, the education also was very much part of his whole outlook in general on 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 crime and justice and things like that. Uh, you know, the, it was something the Rebbe devoted a lot of attention to in his own right, besides for the discussions of education and a moment of silence. In fact, before he even became the official leader of the Chabad movement in 1950, um, he articulated a, a interesting critique of the whole prison system in America. It's quite, it's quite fascinating. This is already, you know, 1950. Um, and in general, he, was, he, he wrote over there a whole letter saying how the whole prison system has no place from a Torah perspective. There's no such thing as prison as a punishment in the Torah. And he essentially articulated critique around the idea that a human being has value. That's what we were talking about before. Every, purpose, every person has a purpose. So long as a person is alive, so long as God has given somebody life, that means that they have a divine mission in the world. They have a purpose. And that purpose is not to be segregated from the rest of society. It's to make a contribution to society. So he had this very interesting mixture of a social vision coupled with a, with a mystical purpose, which really was the inspiration for, his, for much of his initiatives. The individual isn't just a, in relation to society. If a person is just measured by their social worth, well, then if they committed a crime and they've broken the social contract, okay, so then you could say there's no value. He has no value anymore to society. Put them away. Lock them up. But when you introduce the soul aspect, the soul dimension, that there's God here and God is creating this person, that means God still has hope for that person. If God has hope for that person, has a mission for that person, then we also should invest our hope in that, per, per, in that person. So he want, the Rebbe wanted to turn around the whole idea of criminal justice and actually put the focus on rehabilitation. And he actually connected this to his education. Rather, that he, he expressed this in a meeting. He had, he had an encounter with George Weinstein, who's still around and still sits on the federal bench, who's an activist judge. He's a Jewish judge in Brooklyn, Weinstein. And uh, he, Weinstein, has been actually an activist judge in the sense that he's really been an activist an advocate for, for sentencing reform and for rehabilitative uh, sentencing. And when he came to the Rebbe in the, I think it was in 1989, they'd already been in touch before, but this was a, a face-to-face enc- encounter. Uh, it was one of those uh, the, during the Sundays where people would come by the Rebbe to, you know, they'd get a dollar for charity. And he told the Rebbe, he hmm. said, I'm going to speak to a group of prosecutors. I'm going to talk to them about your ideas for rehabilitation or rehabilitative uh, sentencing. And the Rebbe said to him something like this. He said, I don't want them to just be my ideas. Mm. I want you to endorse them as well. He said, and then he said like a prayer. He said, may we soon see the day when we do not need prisons at all and we'll just have preventive education. So you see this link between education, the moment of silence, which is a huge part of that, has a certain preventative element to it that if education is sound then you won't need mm. some of the other mitigating factors that we use kind of post factum once we have problems we try and put the beta you know we try to put a band-aid on it we start putting people in prison so the rebbe's response was education can preempt that 
But even when we are in a post-factum state, when there are issues, when there are crimes being committed, the Rebbe wanted the focus to be on rehabilitation, that I'm building off a person's sense of being a human being with a mission. That should be my starting point. Every person, we began this podcast, mm. every person is created in the image of God with a mission. And not God forbid that the prison system, as it so often does, puts people down, shoves them down, and makes them feel inhuman, and actually reinforces the cycles of bad. So the Rebbe wanted to reverse that and create a situation where you have cycles of good. In terms of the Rebbe's engagement with the broader community, is are, are there certain concepts that uh, Jewish concepts that really took hold are, you know, something that you know, he pushed for this idea of a moment of silence. Did, did, did he attach that to a broader Jewish concept or was that something that he just put out there and didn't link it back to something? No, it was very, it was very much inspired by, by a Jewish concept. All of the Rebbe's initiatives can all be traced back. You know, superficially, it seems like, oh, wow, he was a big activist. He was a big uh, proponent of social justice and, you know, a great, and th these things, you know, maybe you could apply some of these terms, attribute some of these terms to him. But, but really, the motivating underlying theme was, was this uh, idea, as, as it says all the way back in the beginning of the Torah, that man was created in the image of God. That human beings are are divine. That there's 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 more to life than the world is. You know, shouldn't be a jungle. The world should be a beautiful place to, to be cultivated, to be taken care of, to be cherished, to be appreciated. Um, it was very much motivated by Jewish teachings and Jewish thought. Um, the fact that it had universal universal um, appeal is part of the whole purpose. You know, we mentioned before about talking about a time to come in the future where we say the whole world will be filled with godliness, meaning by definition, people will become more godly, will be more in touch with their spiritual purpose and learn to transcend the, you know, the, the, the uh, material strife and that sometimes can bog people down. Um, how do we get there? That's through all these initiatives. That's, you know, it starts, starts small. It starts from just a few seconds of a little kid thinking about what is meaningful in life? What, why am I here? So the whole, all these concepts and all of the Rebbe's initiatives can all be traced back to that singular point of getting to, uh, you know, the Rebbe would describe sometimes how as a very, already as a little child, he would sometimes imagine, uh, envision a time of, of, of the Messianic era, of a time when the world will be at peace and there'll be no more wars and people will be respecting each other and uh, people will be kind to each other and there won't be suffering, there won't be illness and all the, you know, all the things that we pray for. Um, getting to there requires a lot of work, a lot of hard work, a lot of effort. And so you have to use all these ideas, all the, you know, the social justice and the lobbying and all of that. These are all just tools to get to that underlying point, that singular point where mankind can be at peace with one another, which of course is very much, uh, motivated by the Torah. It's completely a, it's one of the principles, Maimonides, 12 principles of faith, 13 principles of faith, pardon me. Uh, it's number 12, I believe. Um, the idea that that we believe that there is going to be a time where where people will realize their purpose and people will be more godly and, and more uh, more in tune with their soul. So, if there was a way to measure DOS, the the percentage of DOS in a person or their um, their ability level, like I think about uh, the 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 video game Madden, 
where it's up to one to 99 until in terms of skill level in certain areas. So when you're creating a player, you could do speed and you could do speed 95 and then power 85 and you can toggle the, the, the degree to which they, they have that, that's that, that skill. I was, is the Rebbe just off the charts in DOS? Is that part of what, uh, did he have 99 level DOS? It's interesting. I guess you could say that. I mean, the truth is the purpose, we believe the idea, the whole concept of a Rebbe, of a Jewish leader, um, you know, there's, there's an interesting question. He, he had to talk about this, about, it says in the Talmud that the Jewish people are believers, the sons of believers, meaning that we have this inherent faith you know, that's built into our DNA. We have these certain characteristics which are very much part of the fabric of, of who we are. Um, and therefore, we have all have a, a unique and direct relationship with God. What do I need some Moses figure to come along and, and stop preaching to me? I already have a connection with God. God created me in his image. What do I need you for? And the answer is that... His, his job essentially is Das. His job is to, he, he's not creating your new faith. He's not telling you that you, you know, this is what you're missing because you already have it. He's letting you know that you already have it. He's allowing you to be conscious of what you have. We get, you know, through the journeys of life, forget about some of our inherent capabilities. The purpose of a Rebbe and any Jewish leader for that matter, and really it's uh, in general, when we all, we're all leaders to someone, um, is to help somebody else get in touch with their das is to help them apply. Uh, you could say the Rebbe's off the charts in the sense that, you know, this is what I guess you could say separate himself, even though it's very much rooted in Jewish teaching and in and particularly in Jewish mysticism, but the creativity with which to to make that connection, to make that leap from, you know, a a, a deep Jewish mystical idea, and to go from there, and apply that to a moment of silence or criminal justice reform. Most people wouldn't necessarily see that, make that connection, make that bridge. That That's true. That does require a, a very expansive mind. Um, but now that he's opened those gates and he's told us this is, that's what really, that's what it's all about. That, the Torah is not supposed to be stuck in a book. The word Torah literally comes from the word Horah, which means instruction, to teach. Torah is meant to be applied. It's supposed to be, in, it's supposed to be involved, engaged in, in, the, in the real world down here. It wasn't given to angels, as the famous expression goes. Torah was given to human beings with their flaws, with their challenges, and specifically human beings to implement the Torah, to apply it in their day-to-day life. And for sure, you do need uh, you do need a figure in life who, you know, God has, I guess, blessed them with a certain ability to show you how 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 far this goes, how far this application works, and how it's actually possible and it's doable. And it worked, and it indeed is successful. You described a, a rabbi. One key thing they're doing is reminding their fellow Jew of the purpose that they're here for. Are there any stories, be it in your own family with your father or grandfather or the Rebbe, where there was some epic level of reminding this per, this? this fellow Jew of their purpose? So one story that I think that comes to my mind, um, on the fly over here, but (laughs) 
I think my, my grandfather, I think you could apply, I think this could be applied to your question, um, where he was, he was, um, he was a university graduate and he, um, he wanted to pursue a different, you know, different, a different, um, academic studies and philosophy. I mean, he did, he got it, he got his PhD and everything. Um, there's one particular story where, where the Rebbe used to encourage him to, you know, in general, the Rebbe encouraged him to write books. He wrote quite a lot. He's written over 30 books or something on, on all kinds of, you know, topics in the Jewish uh, fields, Torah, mysticism, etc. Um, but particularly Jewish mysticism, like the, you know, works of Kabbalah, of, of the inner dimension of the Torah. And he, uh, he, wrote, he wrote a lot of those extensively. But there was one particular work where the Rebbe wanted him very much to get involved in, to, to write, to contribute, and he was very much reluctant. He felt that it was something beyond him. Uh, my grandfather's background, actually, uh, the family that I come from, my grandfather and great-grandfather, were not actually Hasidic, per se. They come from a more uh, non-Hasidic background. They were Orthodox. Uh, they were considered you know, very religious people. Um, they were rabbis, but they weren't Hasidic. They, weren't, they didn't necessarily have that same exposure to Hasidim or, or Hasidic teachings um, as I did growing up in it. So my grand, there, there, were, there were certain things that he was just uncomfortable with. He felt reluctant. He felt this is something already beyond him. It was a very, whoever wants him to basically publish a book that was very mystical, very deep, very profound, but it was almost like uncharted territory that he felt, you know, give this to someone who's more well-versed in these, in these ideas. It's not for me. This is not, you know, I know, you know, I have, I have a, an academic background. I can maybe find the right language, but in terms of delving into these ideas and these teachings, it was very, very, it was very, uh, you know, he felt very much that it was beyond him, but the Rebbe didn't back down. And almost every time he used to fly to New York for a visit, for a visit, um, at some point in their conversation, the Rebbe would bring it up and say, so what's with the book? What's with the book? And he'd always found another excuse and he would always say, you know, it's not for me or whatever. Um, this went on for quite a while. And then I don't know, I forgot which year the Rebbe had a, the Rebbe had a stroke and basically a lot of, you know, there, there was a system of people used to write letters to the Rebbe and he would respond his volumes and volumes today printed in English of the Rebbe's response to people. It's uh, highly encouraged reading them. It's fascinating. The, the various the all types of questions that he got, <laughs> you can well imagine thousands of questions and the answers, um, no less interesting. And basically when the Rebbe had a stroke, um, there was no more, this, this, you know, writing your question, getting an answer was kind of put on hold. Um, but my grandfather had indeed written a letter, you know, was one such person who wrote a letter as he always did. I've got, you know, for various occasions, maybe it was a birth to let the Rebbe know about, you know, a certain family, uh, celebration that they had. Um, and what was basically the way the story goes is that he was the only person that got a response and nobody, the Rebbe wasn't writing back letters to people. So that it was very unusual. And, you know, the Rebbe had a stroke. He was physically, you know, incapable. Um, he's being tended to he's in the hospital, but basically he got a response, but it wasn't a lengthy response to any of the stuff that he asked. There was no answer to any of his questions, any like that. It was just a very short one word answer. Basically, the, he quoted the name of the book with a question mark. 
And that was it. And my grandfather saw that. He said he, he visibly, he physically like, like broke down almost. Like he was getting, he cried. Like he couldn't believe like, this is a man who's, you know, answering presidents, answering generals, Israeli military generals would come consult on all masses, uh, answering widows, orphans with their difficult challenges in life, answering every kind of possible situation. And right now he's had a stroke and he's going through his own personal challenges. And the Rebbe had, didn't always have it easy himself on a, on a purely human level, had a very difficult life. Um, you know, lost plenty of family in the Holocaust. He, he suffered a lot. He didn't have children. There was, there was all kinds of things, you know, you would never know it looking at what he accomplished. And all he could think about is this book. This is, this is what he's worried about. <laughs> and then my grandfather realized that sometimes you have to stop seeing yourself under your own limitations, stop seeing yourself the way you see yourself and start to see yourself the way, the way God sees you, the way, the way Torah sees you, the way our tradition sees you and realize you're capable of a lot more than you, than you give yourself credit for. And I think that was a moment of real das for him, that connection that, that you have this in you and I'm not going to back down and you're going to do it. You, you, you have the ability to do it. And he, indeed, he, he wrote it. He wrote many works in it and kind of carried on his, uh, until he passed away. He didn't even, he kept writing in this, in this area. Well, I definitely think that story answers that question and what a powerful, powerful <laughs> story. And one to wrap up this first, this inaugural podcast here i i can't thank you enough for making the time and being willing to jump into the fray here and test out this concept with me it means a lot and i'm excited to see where this goes i'm excited to have you back on and we'll dive deeper in and explore other other areas of of, of our great tradition and i any final words here? I wish you a lot of a lot of success, a lot of uh, a lot of mazel in this new uh, adventure. I think this is a great idea, and it's beautiful. And I also, I look forward to seeing where it goes. Tomorrow morning, number one, an Apple podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally unexpected. Search for DOS. <laughs> <laughs>